0: It's the H-Word Podcast
1: Hi, everyone I'm Becky I'm Dan, hello <laughs>
0: Hi, how are <laughs> you? Hi, how are you? I'm okay Um. Yeah, I'm okay, too I'm trying
1: to I'm trying a... You're trying what? What, what are you... you trying? No, what are you trying? I'm trying a new setup today Oh uh, Yeah, and I wanted to get your reaction to it while we're on the air So uh, I'm sending you a pic of what I look like right now Oh, okay Okay. It's going to make a buzz. Yeah, it's going to make a little buzz. I edit it out. Okay, well, we'll see if you edit it out.
0: Is this a picture of... <laughs> oh, wow. You like it? Um... Oh, you're indoors.
1: I'm indoors. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
0: I'm indoors. I thought, you were... <laughs> I thought you were at the beach with a pillow on your head.
1: No, I'm indoors with a pillow on my head.
0: Okay, well, we're going to post this on our um, Instagram. This is some really good content. Uh...
1: I'm trying to, uh, this is my, uh, you know, rear sound wall attempt.
0: Oh, because you've got a really echoey place. Because what? You've got a really echoey place.
1: Oh, I, you kind of broke up. We're, full disclosure, we're on the phone as we do this, and I didn't hear that last thing.
0: You live in an echoey home.
1: Oh, I live in an echoey home, yes. Lots of, um, you know, flat walls.
0: <laughs> Real Dan Byrne, um vibe. The walls are oh, flat. Absolutely. Actually, oh,
1: that's so flat.
0: You know what? My walls, I'm looking around, are not flat. They're covered in bumps and weird. They're not straight. So, yeah, and you sound great. Well, I put I had to put a bunch more junk back in my office. It sounds better. Um, well, this is great. Uh, this is wonderful because I have a picture to post this week of me doing something similar. Actually, I'm going to send it to you. This is great because I wasn't prepared to do this, so just all bets are off here on...
1: Whether this works,
0: you know, Dan, we've been through a lot. Um, we've been through some sad times. It's still pretty fucking sad out there in the world. But I- I'm at a place of just trying things out and bringing back some levity. Okay, I sent you a picture of me. <laughs>
1: okay, what is this? You're you're huffing something. Are you huffing a bag of chips? <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> it, it looks like you've taken a bag of sour cream and onion and you're using them as a respirator
0: um you are close it is regular flavor <laughs>
1: <laughs> are you trying oh because you're trying not to pass out is that what that is
0: um i'm not going to tell you because your your <laughs> question will be answered in the interview later <laughs> okay great <laughs> but these, these two pictures do feel like companion pieces I love it. So you guys will get to see them all on our Insta, um, and I'll tell you about the interview in a sec. So this is great. We're, okay. This is it. We're 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 rolling to the end of July, I guess. Absolutely. Weather
1: update. It's a stinker. It's stinker hot.
0: I have not been outside. Uh, weather blazing up- sun. Weather update. Um, I will go out in a bit. Um, I have a new uh, segment. Ah. Um, so the entire intro today so far it has nothing to do with <laughs> any of our themes but i'm into it the new segment is called um recommending a podcast i haven't listened to yet mm. so last week i recommended uh, mark andrada's podcast we like theme parks but i hadn't listened yes. to it mm-hmm. and now i've listened to it, it i liked it
1: <laughs> oh, okay so follow up from that segment so follow thumbs up. up this
0: is where it came from thumbs up i don't know much about theme parks um, so I listened to the one about Florida reopening cause it felt political and yes, yeah. I wasn't disappointed. Cool. <laughs> and and um, do
1: you, do you have another podcast to recommend?
0: Uh, yeah, I do. So, so this isn't exactly related to our themes, but I figured I'd recommend podcasts of friends to support them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And if I do it before I listen, then I can always recommend them.
1: <laughs> of course. Yeah. In good conscience. You can sleep at night.
0: Not that I don't think they're going to be good, but you just never know. So yeah. I'm... Now recommending and committing to listen to an episode of the Riverdale Rude Dudes. What is that? It's Chris Middleton's podcast um, with somebody else. And it's uh, recaps of Riverdale. And I guess they talk about it. So I'm going to listen to a recent episode having not watched Riverdale since its first season. (laughs) That sounds
1: great. And uh, yeah, like I stopped first season also because I could... I I could smell where it was headed, and I wasn't interested.
0: People like it. People like it, and uh, so I'm going to check out the Riverdale rude dudes this week. Um, I mean, I guess I could work to make that my hopeful. It honestly, it honestly is like listening to the voices of people I like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and yeah, we're getting granular.
0: Well, yeah, I I could go a little more macro, which is um. Like this week, I remembered that um art and entertainment is still out there. Mhm um I think a lot of people are going through different waves of feelings right now, and I had a few I'm a very obsessive person at the best of times, mm-hmm. so was going through a lot of stuff, couldn't stop obsessing, still having some trouble with that, but was like, oh, uh, like books are, help reading a book helps, yeah. Um, that was going to be my hopeful for this week was just books. Just
1: books.
0: (laughs) In general, the notion of books, they're great. This is
1: like, yeah, the, the, the epitome of looking around the room and being like, I don't know, what do I like? Books. (laughs) Uh, Windows is my hopeful.
0: (laughs) Windows 95?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um. (laughs) If we can make advances like that, we can do anything. In
0: 1995, then imagine. What we could do now. Is there anything, um, anything you want to talk about?
1: (laughs) Um, I don't know. Secret police? I don't know.
0: Okay. Let's do that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Okay. It's bad. Uh, (laughs) um,
0: Yeah, it's bad. It's bad news. It it can't all just be books and podcasts I haven't listened to.
1: Yeah. Do we know where they are? That They were, um... They were. They've been in Portland. That's where they started. And uh, going to Seattle. Uh, going to they in Seattle now. I believe so. What about Chicago and Milwaukee?
0: <sighs> I heard. I've heard a lot of things bandied about. To be quite honest, I haven't done quite enough reading on this. I heard um, Chicago, Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and I also heard Albuquerque. Um, yes,
1: I heard Albuquerque also, which is of
0: concern because of friends there. Um. I don't know what to say about that, though.
1: Well, I've just been I, I, I've watched a couple of um, live stream Twitch streams of uh, the nightly events. It's it, it seems like the, the sense I get is that it goes on for like an hour and a half. They kind of like there's like a routine now, maybe where they just kind of like come out and show their stuff and then retreat. And it's like you just can't get in the way of them like walking around.
0: They just have to walk around for an hour and a half and, like, tear gas a bunch of mothers.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, anyone in their way, which is pretty much everyone in the video, gets tear gassed.
0: Yeah. This is, um, you know, of of the just myriad horrors going on right now, I found this one particularly chilling. Oh,
1: absolutely. Any, like, any time you want to see, like... The Purge. It's just available ongoing currently right now.
0: I still want to talk about this military stuff that I don't understand enough about.
1: Yes, because earlier on in the the arc of things you were saying, you were sort of like taking a bit of solace in the idea that perhaps the military would not attack its own citizens.
0: Yeah, and this, was, this came to me through my friend Matt Horgan from Atlanta, and mm-hmm. um, and it it seems to mostly be coming to pass, but I just didn't realize there were so many other pseudo militaries that the president had access to.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: I I still I want to have some hope in the military in like a loose way that I don't understand because it would be nice to have more things out there to be hopeful for.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a dark kind of hope because like the military is is not good.
0: Is it not good? Not like it's I've not been into good. the military, but like
1: It's an it's an arm yeah. of imperialism.
0: Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, this yeah. week I looked up the Anti-Defamation League and found out that they're not great. So Is that true? Well, okay. That's a this is a very weird choice for me to make at the end of our intro segment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> For me to just be like,
0: okay. <laughs> well, also full disclosure, <laughs> my name is Becky Johnson. I am Jewish, so uh-huh. let's just make that clear. When I'm talking about the Anti Defamation League, um, but I I did some I did some reading. Actually, this sort of does relate to some stuff that comes up in the last episode of the podcast. Sort of, um, Saida talks about time in Palestine. So again, why am I bringing this up now? But the Anti Defamation League is. Duh, does protect Jewish rights, but it's also quite compli It's quite complicated in the way that's intertwined with power and money. Maybe I should just cut this out.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we can we can stop here if you want.
0: Let's just say. Let me just say it's um, there's a conservatism to it, and as we're as we're constantly having these conversations about one ethnicity or one group not being a monolith. Well, let's just say Judaism is not either. And the Anti-Defamation League doesn't necessarily align itself with progressive um, social justice oriented Judaism.
1: Yes, it is a... There. Um, I
0: said it in a way that didn't make it sound horrible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's a it's a heavy hammer that hits a wide, you know, it's like it, it, um, it's a blunt object. Well, you know, it's not it, – it, well, you're right. It suffers from the lack of nuance when it comes to
0: mm, – I actually wouldn't say that. I think it's just oh. much further right than, say, I am. So one of the major things is that, like, it's pretty anti-Palestinian. Right. It protects Jewish rights. And I'm the kind of Jew who does not think that human rights are separated in that way. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Okay. and we are out there <laughs> we're there so i looked that up when we were talking about statues this is a terrible note to end on <laughs> i'm going to go like
1: <laughs> i mean I, I don't know i don't know whether i should keep talking or not
0: whoa you just made a really weird sound hello
1: and the phone cut what out what happened wow hello? the phone cut <laughs> okay, out <well. laughs>
0: okay well. Dan just disconnected and this sounded like a big, huge, weird sound. So I'm just going to say goodbye. Um, We have an interview coming up with Anand Rajaram and uh, I'm sorry. Okay, bye. Oh, wait, he's calling back. Hi, everybody. I'm back. It's Becky, and I am joined from across the city by my old buddy, Anand Rajram. Anand, how are hi, you doing? Hi, hi,
2: hi. I'm great. Thanks for having me.
0: Hi, hi. hi. We're all great. Um, Anand, I'm going to start, as I always do, by getting you to introduce yourself and telling the listeners who you are in this world.
2: Um, I'm a Toronto-based performer. Uh, I'm a theater creator. I, I like to do a lot of different types of performance uh, one of the ways Becky and I know each other is through improv. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't know what, I'm vegan. Um, I, I, uh, I'm i South Asian. Uh, I was born in India and I moved here when I was young. I have a tricycle unicycle, but I haven't mastered it yet. And that'll surprise oh, yeah. nobody that knows me. Um, I think that's yeah, uh, what what else I do I I didn't know to- that though.
0: Yeah. I don't know, whatever, you, that's it, that's good. I just want you to do it in your own words. Sure. Um, have you been lately?
2: I've been fine. I, I yeah. have. Uh, sadly, I haven't been that badly affected by all those, personally.
0: That's not sad.
2: Well, I mean, in the sense of, like, uh, if I was more social, then maybe I'd feel it more. But I've been quite fine self-isolating. And there's friends mm-hmm. of mine who are, you know, much more social, who have a hard time. So, you know, I feel for them. I just, I'm not experiencing that.
0: What have you been up to?
2: I've been doing a lot of my own kind of like playing with augmented reality. I've been doing digital media stuff. And so it's just things that I've been learning. I'm not a like computer whiz. It's just things that I've been learning on my own and then finding small projects to apply to. And that's slowly building so that I've got a couple of things coming up now with uh, augmented reality.
0: I don't understand what augmented reality is um, very well.
2: The one the one reference most people would know quickly and easily is Pokemon Go. Okay. But what that means is you take reality and then you do some digital thing augments on top of it, and you use a device like a computer or a tablet or a phone in order to be able to activate the digital aspect that's superimposed on the live aspect. You got it.
0: Yeah, so is this something that sort of dovetails with your theatrical practice?
2: Yeah, it totally does. Because in, in theatrical practice, uh, for example, if I want to play a different character, I put on a different voice. Maybe I wear a different outfit or even like a wig or facial hair or something. I'll change my appearance somehow. Uh, through the augmented reality that I'm doing, we wear virtual masks. Oh my goodness. So it's, you can wear costumes, you can wear masks that completely hide your face, You can change your background and you can play a variety of different characters. And just the only thing you differentiate is your voice.
0: So this is like, I mean, I've seen you in some recent shows. So this is similar to that work, the live shows where you'll play like a bunch of different characters.
2: As a performer, yeah. As a performer, it's the same as the... Uh, style of presentation, that's where it's different. But it's uh, its not that markedly different. It's borrowing from film and video and animation techniques to an extent.
0: What was your training in theater?
2: Um, well, I went to the University of Waterloo, and I won't say that it's a training program per se, but there were a few <laughs> acting classes. I mean, in the sense of it's not a conservatory like George Brown or you know National Theater School or Ryerson. It's not a conservatory. You don't have to audition to get into the the program you do have to audition for the actual acting classes um Mm. and you have to do that every year but in general you know you you uh don't get the kind of focused conservative training you get more of an academic training so a lot of it is um is around script analysis and theory and history and the performance aspect is a very small part of that huh You could do the whole program and almost never perform. And that's kind of what happened to me. I only performed in my four and a half. Yeah, I think four and a half semesters there. Or years there, I should say. Uh, I think I performed in two shows. And both of them were in, no, three shows. Three shows or two shows? I think, no, three shows. And only one of them had like a sort of like quasi-substantial part. It was maybe like a a third, third level part. It wasn't a lead and it wasn't a secondary.
0: But performance is so central in your life now, so it wasn't a big part of your education?
2: Uh, it it sucks that it wasn't part of my education. I made it part of my education by going outside the theater and performing with the University of Laurier when they would do productions, or going to the Kitchener-Waterloo Little Theater and doing their productions, or creating stuff on my own because the theater itself wasn't, giving me parts so i found other ways to do it and then otherwise it was a an important part of my education because of the cohort that i learned so much from watching the people i was with and they were all terrific
0: why do you think you weren't getting parts
2: Uh, it's always speculative i mean yeah i i i think it's before i blatantly say that it was discriminatory um i mean i think i think it was but at the same time um I don't know. I don't know what the what the priority was when they were doing those shows. Like, the, for example, one show I auditioned for, the director told a friend of mine, and the director liked me well enough, and he was one of my profs, and told a friend of mine who was a stage manager on it um, that uh, he thought I was terrific in every part I auditioned for, that I could play almost anything that he threw at me. He felt very yeah. confident in that. And as a result, he put me as the last person to consider because there were other people that was easier to slot in only this spot or that spot. So by putting me last, I ended up with one line. Oh. So my versatility compromised my ability to get a more significant part. That's extremely convoluted. <laughs> well, it's weird. I mean, I don't know what to say to yeah. that, but I also, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I answer that at all. Yeah. Um
0: this is a podcast about hope. How do you feel about hope
2: as a notion? Uh yeah yeah I don't I, I don't know if I understand the question and uh can you break down what you mean by it?
0: No. <laughs> it's I mean this is the this is the this is the central thing of this podcast is that I don't know that I entirely know.
2: Okay. I mean, I think hope is if you okay, can I lecture for a second?
0: You can lecture for this whole time. That's the point.
2: Okay. So, I I read a little bit about a philosopher um, whose name is going to escape me. Maybe it'll come to me in a second. But the philosopher was talking about um, about something called a joy index. Spinoza, I think it was. But talking about a joy index, and Spinoza's specific meaning about what a joy index is, or how Spinoza viewed it, I don't know. But from the little bit that I did read, I started to parse my own thoughts around the idea of a joy index. So let me say it this way. Mm-hmm. If you have a graph, you got an X, Y, right? You got yeah. the one vertical line that goes straight up, and then you've got the other line horizontally all across. So the line that's horizontally across, that's the number of years you live in your life. Okay. The, the Y axis, that long vertical axis... That is the amount of joy in your life. But joy here is not defined by being happy. Joy is defined from your body's perspective of wanting to continue to stay alive. When you get into an accident, your body's desire to stay alive may be strong, but the accident truncates the ability so it's a sharp line off. When you get to a point where you're depressed and you feel like, Your body agrees with your mind, this is enough, let's just commit suicide. And Uh there's a. the people will talk about how there's kind of a reckoning, there's a peace that people come to with that, that when moments like that happen, I don't think it would be um, surprising to see that the graph would not tend to be a sharp drop, but would be a much more gradual decline before coming to that point. Same with someone who's ill and who's been ill and fighting an illness for a long time, they are in the in the hospital. Their body fights to stay alive, even if they're in a coma. They fight to stay alive, fight to stay alive. At some point, the body says, uh, "I can't. I uh, I've given up the joy of trying to stay alive, and therefore they die." Hmm. So what that means is, when your body is fluctuating in that line of staying alive or dying, as it fluctuates, it's doing everything it possibly can to stay alive, which is why when you're depressed, your mind has entered a depressive state and your body is in a depressive state, all of a sudden your body says, we got to get out of this. How do we get out of this? I know. Let's do something that made us feel good before. What's something that made us feel good before? I know. How about that time you ate cake? Because as a kid, you ate cake and you loved cake. And every time since, you've always had cake at parties. So cake means we're in a good place. We're feeling good. Things are okay. So let's eat a piece of cake. So then your mind goes, yeah, okay, and follows the body's directive, and you go and buy cake, and then you eat the cake, and then you feel terrible after. Because you're like, why did I do that, right? But it's because your body is doing the right thing, which is trying to survive. Your mind hasn't guided the body to say, well, wait a minute. Cake was a good idea when I was younger, maybe. But the better idea now is socialize or exercise or read a book or watch a movie or go to sleep or drink some water or something else which the mind now decides it's not going to feel guilty for later on. So the mind's job is to direct the body to better choices, but the body's never wrong. Really? So what it means, I mean, yeah, fundamentally, when the body wants drugs, the body's never wrong. The body is always right, always right. Always right in its intention, in its desire, in its want. But at the core of that intention, desire, want, there's a different way to achieve the same thing. And the bo- the mind's job is to direct the body to another way to achieve that same thing that is less so like, harmful.
0: So like drugs means that there's something that you need, like an escape or a relaxation or
2: something? Exactly. I mean, that's why people take drugs. Nobody takes a drug that makes them feel terrible. Nobody takes a drug that makes them feel really awful and feel worse. I mean, I'd be interested in a drug that did that and then wonder why people do it. The vast majority of people that I know and the vast majority of drugs that I've heard of are ones that make people feel better. It may damage them. Right. But and they may feel worse after they feel better. Absolutely. It may may feel worse after. It may even feel worse like seconds after if it's something really lethal. But for a moment even if the even if it's a new drug and they haven't tried it yet the belief that the drug will make them feel better is why they take it right you offer somebody a drug and say this is going to be really terrible for you you're going to have a terrible trip and you'll probably die the likelihood of you selling it is pretty close to zero <laughs> right
0: um have you have you been a depressed person
2: uh I think that there's, it's a tricky word, depressed, because there's a clinical definition to depressed. Uh And then there's a a sort of a more socially accepted understanding of what it means to be depressed. So someone who's clinically depressed, I'm not going to be able to speak authoritatively about that. But there are very specific, there are very specific checks that a doctor would use to say, clinically speaking, by definition, are you depressed or not? Mm-hmm. Have I been sad? Yes. Have I been hospitalized for my depression? No. Have I I guess
0: I mean like when you oh sorry, you get No. no.
2: Well, I'm I'm just differentiating that. It's just I'm just saying, like if I I've had up days and down days. I've had days where I feel like, what's the point of doing anything? And what, why don't I just give up? Like I'm not sure what my what my purpose is, what my reason is. Does does if I make this funny post, who gives a shit? Is it is it worthwhile my effort? Why don't I just stop all of it altogether and just, I don't know, become a hermit, which I might do, you know? But that's me going through the daily flux of being alive and the tensions of being alive. If I'm saying, I know that the only way to solve this problem is to commit suicide, then maybe I would go through clinical depression where they might test me in a variety of ways, offer drugs. And at the end of it, I might say, yeah, rationally, I understand all that. I understand the physical feeling. I still think it's better to me for me that I'm dead, that maybe I make that choice. But where I'm at, I haven't been even at the middle stage of being um, diagnosed. So I am hesitant to use the term depressed.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I meant like in that situation of like, lying in bed, body goes, I want cake. Have you been in that sort of situation.
2: Absolutely. And in fact, I'm so I'm vegan. And I've been vegan since 92. So how many years is that? Uh, Lots. That's a lot of years. 28? 28. 28. 28. Okay, yeah, 28 years. So, so I've been vegan 28 years. And my consistent perspective has been with people who are um, struggling to become vegan, that their basic struggle Is uh, they say things like, I just love the taste of meat, right? Right. So that's totally understandable. The taste of meat. I don't believe that you would eat it if it didn't taste good. I know it tastes good. It must taste really good. And frankly, I want to taste how good it is. But (laughs) I don't want to taste it at the compromise of that animal being killed. So what are the flavors that are associated with it? What are the textures associated with it? Can I create something that gives me the same or similar flavor and texture profile so I can say, oh, yeah, I can enjoy this without killing an animal? Then, yeah, for sure, I support that. But... But then this person says, well, what about my health? I need it for certain nutrients and stuff. Then again, I say, okay, well, there's plenty of foods that offer the same sort of nutritional value. Let's look at what does this offer? Can you get it somewhere else? So if you reprogram your mind to get the nutrients where you want it and get the flavor where you want it, then you've substituted those two things already. Then the third thing is how do I change my pattern and my habit? And I'll tell you 28 years ago that was really 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 hard because there weren't a lot of vegans and there wasn't a lot of places you could go out to eat or have people even understand what you're asking. Now in Toronto and in most big cities in the world, you can go into a place and they can accommodate you. That's yeah. so that's much easier now. You can go to the grocery store and buy vegan foods off the shelf. That's much easier. That was never possible a while ago. Mm-hmm. So, ultimately, it comes down to if you really are committed to a change of some kind, then it's a question of like, what can you do to substitute and the initial step is the hardest. But you make that initial step and you do it often enough, then you'll switch.
0: The initial step being like, not wanting, like your body says, give me drugs or give me a steak and you go, okay, well, we're going to take a second and we're going to figure out something else. Exactly. To give you.
2: Exactly. Yeah take a second and and do a different exercise for example here's a really ridiculous one really ridiculous but i swear okay. to god it works okay okay when you eat but a potato chips the the fat in that your body takes about 20 20 minutes or so to process and uh-huh. and then it sends signals to your brain, which have certain inhibitors that then say, okay, I'm full. I've had my fat intake. I don't need any more. At which point you can keep eating the chips, but usually you hit a point when you're eating the chips where you go, ah, okay, that's enough. That's enough. I can't eat anymore. Right? Yeah. So you're hitting that point anyway. You can hit that point faster if you do this one ridiculous, but simple thing, which is open a new bag of chips when, you're, when you really feel like a craving and you can't say, I don't want carrots or something else crunchy, I want chips, open a new bag of chips, put your mouth and your nose into the chips <laughs> and do deep inhales. And do that for like about a minute or so. Do deep inhales, breathe in that that fat. Your receptacles in the brain, those receptors will trigger that you've ingested the fat even though you haven't. And the likelihood that you'll stop eating them is sooner than if you didn't do that.
0: So you do that and then you eat some or you just don't want to eat them?
2: Well, you do that and then you recognize what is it that I want? You go, well, I I guess I just wanted the salt and fat because my brain has now said, yeah, I don't want to eat those now because I've smelt them. Or you go, no, but I still want to eat them. In which case you go, okay, so I'm still hungry. Okay, so I'll eat them, but I'll I'll make a deal with myself. I'll eat these chips, but I'll eat something else like a carrot. I'll eat something else that's a celery, something crunchy with it. Yeah. So then you balance it out. Maybe at some point you put extra salt on the celery and you don't eat the chips. Um
0: Anand, what's your relationship with the future?
2: Yeah, that's also that's a great question. I think uh...
0: Thank you. i'm trying
2: (laughs) you know like uh you know in india well not just in india they do it here too but in um in south asian cultural practice it's not uncommon to have arranged marriages right Uh uh-huh well what happens is not just about families talking to families but now there's a you must know there's a whole industry where you can go online or in newspapers and see matrimonial offers. I did not know that. No. Oh, yeah, it's massive, massive, massive if you look for it. There's so many out there. Um for okay. you, just put in Hindu matrimonials, a bunch of sites will come up no doubt. They'll describe age, they'll say maybe their star sign, they'll say a couple things about them and maybe their professional experience. And then and then it'll usually be the parents or the family of the per- the, son, the, the, the the person getting married. So then you write them and you'll have somebody on your behalf maybe or you yourself you write you send your own biodata they call it and uh, your biodata is your height your weight your what you look like your photo what your job is how much you make you give that kind of information and then they will okay. they will look at it and vet it and then it's like resumes they they receive a bunch of resumes and they go well thank you for contacting us we no longer require services from you we're going to switch to some somebody else and then they do a short list so the point the point that i'm making though is when you put the ad in the newspaper you're buying into a future idea right but you don't know if that future idea means you're going to get a relationship or not first of all whether you get one and it works out or not you don't know you're taking a risk is taking the risk better than not taking the risk sure Are there other ways to take the risk where you're not putting your ad in the paper? Sure. You can go down the street, try to meet somebody. Sure. But taking the risk in general, if what you want is to be happy, is better than not taking the risk. So that's what my relationship with the future is, is my taking the risk at trying to maintain joy in my life. Is it worth the effort if tomorrow the whole world blows up? I think so, because today it got me through.
0: What is bringing you joy lately?
2: Um, that's complicated too. I think in a way the digital stuff I'm doing, gives me joy, but the part of it that doesn't give me joy is the part that extends beyond my just making it. My making it is really fun. My showing other people to make it is really fun. My playing with other people is really fun. And then even my editing the video and posting it is really fun. Mm. But then once it's out there, then it's kind of like, okay, now I'm back at where I was before. Like I still have to go back and create again. And so in uh, the thing that I guess I feel, the exhaustion I feel is actually the loss of the joy that I just had. So then I I build back up to a point where I start making them again. Then I put it out again. Then I go for a dip again. And the more people like my post, share my post, the more I stay buoyed and go into the next project quicker. If I don't get likes and shares, if I get attacked on it, the likelihood of going back to it is less likely because it's not bringing me joy anymore.
0: Oh, I see. So the joy has to do with reception, too.
2: It shouldn't, but it does. Yeah. That's that's the fundamental challenge with being a performer, is that your joy, one of your core joys, is connected with how other people feel about you. But that's true for every human being. Yeah. It's just that and performers it sh- put it out publicly. It should be. Yeah, sure.
0: If, if we didn't care what anyone else thought, we'd all be ripping each other to... Treads right
2: like well yeah for sure i mean i just mean if i have a group of friends and it feels good to talk to them then at any point i want to feel better i just call my friends we all chat we all feel really good then we hang up a little while goes by we don't feel good we call each other we chat we all feel really good we hang up if i did that maybe i would still be a performer i think i would because there's a core part of me that likes to be a storyteller but i i don't maintain friendships where I'm calling people all the time. So as a result, all of my work gets imbued with the same need for connection, which is why it becomes a problem if I feel like I'm not getting traction. But that's me. That's okay. I can try to find it some other way. I just haven't. It's It's the effort of making it is different than the effort of marketing it and finding the audience.
0: Okay. So you said that you're happy in isolation, but also maybe you're missing socialization a bit.
2: Well, it's in good and bad, it's making me understand or recognize how little I do socialize, which (laughs) is not necessarily a good thing. But at the same time, I have to trust myself that when I go to events where there's a lot of socializing and I feel anxiety around it, I have to trust my feelings around that, about why do I feel that anxiety. And it's because if I go to a party, notoriously, I, I think... In my own mind, I don't think anybody else makes note, but I I typically go when I think the party's over. Huh. And if there's going to be 150 people there, I usually end up and, you know, this party starts at eight o'clock. I usually get there by midnight, at which point I assume there's going to be maybe 15 people left. Yeah, you do show up late. I like that. <laughs> but I do that because I it's, I get overwhelmed if I come in too early and I'm sorry about the people that I miss. But I'm too right. overwhelmed. There's too many people. And it's always quick conversations of, hey, hi, how are you? No, good. Nice to see you. Yeah. Uh, okay. Okay. I'm going to get a drink. Yeah, I'll see you. Later. And then you go and then you kind of don't end up really having talk with anybody. But I come at the end of the night. Those are the last stragglers. I typically will have at least one good conversation. <laughs> and that's what you're in it for. Well, I mean, I feel like that's where I'm at my best. It's not even, it's not even just for me. It's that I, it's when I have the most to offer.
0: Well, I love it too. I've benefited from these conversations with you.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, it's like this conversation, like this conversation, if we could have in a fringe tent, I would love it. Yeah. But we don't tend to, we talk about other things. And I'm not saying we can't talk about frivolous, jokey things. We can. It's just, it's the nature of curation of the conversation. It's easier to curate a conversation when there's less people.
0: And what are there any new thoughts that are occupying your mind right now or theories or things that have just been introduced into your cycle of thinking?
2: Um yeah, the joy thing is a big one. That mm-hmm. one was like I I started thinking about that about a year and a half ago. Another one I thought of about a year and a half ago which might be of interest uh is so so my parents and I moved here from India when I was 5 years old. And mm-hmm. we moved here in 77. And for years, my parents have said, um, when we would be here, they'd say, well, you know, this this country is just different. This life is totally different. And they were right. But they were saying, India is not like that. In India, young people don't swear like that. In India, young people don't hold hands in public. In India, young people don't date. But then, every single time we'd go back, which would be every two or three or four years, we would discover that India that they knew had changed. Suddenly, hmm. people were dressing differently. They were talking differently. They were behaving differently. So now my parents felt like, what the hell happened? I wasn't there to see the change. I've just come back to suddenly this place is totally different than I thought it was, increasingly. And I feel less and less like India is my home. So now they're more likely to say Canada is their home. But they've also lived in Canada longer in their life. Right. So, so, uh, so that feeling that they have is the diasporic disconnection, right? Mm -hmm. But if you really parse it, diasporic disconnection doesn't have to do with the country that you're feeling like disconnected from. It's connected with that country and its place in time, which essentially means time is a country. If time is a country to which you can never return, you're always going to long for it, which is exactly the same as make America great again. The pining is the same. The longing for a different time is the same. My parents could easily say, make India great again, meaning the India that they felt comfortable with when they were growing up. Yeah. But it's really a function of time and entropy and mortality, fundamentally.
0: We just want to be younger again.
2: Yeah. Nobody wants to die. Everyone wants to live forever and everyone wants to be comfortable. Everyone wants to be happy and healthy and okay. And anyone who feels that that's going to be threatened gets upset. And then we end up in a big divide. But even the arguments that we're having right now is so weird because it's like, some people say, take the statue down. Other people could easily say, yeah, okay, sure. Take it down. But they don't because they go, well, wait a minute. If I say, yes, take it down. That's an inch. I'm giving you an inch. I know you're going to take a yard next. You're going to take that away. Then you're going to take something away. Then something else away. Then something else away. Soon I'm going to be like, oh my God, why didn't I stop this? So I've got to stop it right now. You want to take the statue? No, no, no. I'm going to fight tooth and nail. Don't take the statue. Why? They don't care about it. They never visit it. They don't even know who it is. They don't Mm -hmm. care fundamentally. They just care about the future. They see the Indian matrimonial ad and they think that's for sure going to get me killed. I'm going to marry somebody and then they're going to be having some serious issues and they're going to kill me.
0: Wait a second. Oh, you mean they're just like making up a future based on something that makes them uncomfortable in the present? Exactly. Right.
2: Where really, if you just got rid of those statues, there's a huge number of people who don't like them who would be fine. And the ones who didn't care about them would continue to live exactly as they used to live without even knowing they existed. It's a non-issue.
0: Yeah. Do you do you like change?
2: I think... Uh, do I personally love change. At yeah, the same too. time, <laughs> at the same time, I think it's kind of like in all sincerity asking the question, do you like gravity? Yeah. You could say no, I hate it, but you still have to live with it. So how do you reconcile I, it so you don't feel miserable all the time? You I know? feel like
0: more people are fighting change with more vehemence than they're fighting gravity.
2: Absolutely. You know, there's a story of the Buddha where the Buddha was like approached. I mean, it's ap- ap- apocryphal, obviously, but apparently right. the Buddha was approached by this, by this person, a widow, who said, please, you must help me. My husband died and I need your help. He shouldn't have died. He's too young. He still needs to be here for my family. And the Buddha, you know, with compassion, hears this person weep and says, okay, but you know, death is a natural part of life. No, 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 but not yet, not yet. I mean, they, were, they weren't ready yet. They needed to go later. Now was too soon. They, they, they you know, they, I don't need to experience this now. Please, the, you need to bring them back to life. Mm-hmm. The Buddha again says, I think you have to reconcile. No, 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 I know you have the power. Please bring them back. So the Buddha ultimately says, okay, I'll tell you what. I will do a special ceremony to try to bring them back. But in order to do it, I need you to do one thing. Get me a big bowl full of black sesame seeds and the person's like yeah okay no problem he's like well, wait 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 you have to collect a cup of sesame seeds from every home in your village where they have not experienced death go and ask them when you find a home that hasn't experienced it collect a cup of sesame seeds put it in the bowl when the bowl is full bring it to me so the person's like okay i'll do it and goes door to door every single door obviously they've experienced death And that person then ultimately has to reconcile, okay, I'm like everybody else, I have to deal with it. So the idea of not liking change, I mean the Buddha was 2,500 years ago and fundamentally what the Buddha was teaching through meditation was about how to deal with the fact that life is changing and your body's changing and the world is changing and your mind is changing. Everything about Buddhist teaching is about change. It's about how to mm. reconcile the thing, the fact that things are changing, and find the part that is constant within that that you can anchor to, and that is your breath.
1: Mm.
2: So it's not a new problem, and the fact that people are upset, it's not new. None of it is new. It was before the Buddha, and it's since the Buddha.
0: Yeah, does does for you does um, does that understanding that it's not new does that is that calming or soothing? I'm asking because I'm not feeling very calm right now. <laughs> I,
2: You know, I think it's one of those things that you can, you can tell somebody something, but until they experience it for themselves, they don't really understand. Huh. And that's just, that's not a flaw. I think that's fundamentally what helps us to enlightenment, is that you're not born enlightened. You have to figure out, how do I try to move towards that? And so that means not dealing with the tensions of the world, but dealing with the tension in yourself with the world. Mm. And that's what an enlightened being is. They're like the Buddha's not considered enlightened because the world changed and became fine. And the same with Jesus and any other religious figure. Right. It only changed because they particularly showed a way to move through a world that's problematic. Do you consider yourself a spiritual person? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, my veganism is a spiritual practice. It is. Yeah, because it, it fundamentally doesn't come from my trying to be healthier with my body, which is also a spiritual practice, but that's where it comes from. And it doesn't come with um, being better environmentally, which it is, which also is a spiritual practice, but also not where it came from. For me, it was fundamentally, how do I cause less harm to animals?
0: How did it come to you that you wanted to be or needed to be vegan?
2: Being vegetarian is something that I feel like I've known all my life. Like, I don't know how that's true, but I was brought up in a veg household. I know that when I, it's going to sound weird to say, but when I was as young as five years old, I distinctly remember the feeling of being offered something that was meat and feeling the energy off of it and being weirded out by it. They didn't tell Mm -hmm. me it was meat. They just offered me food and it felt wrong. Something about it felt wrong. And I I don't even know if I—I I think I was given something, pigs in a blanket once, and I took a bite and immediately threw it up. My body immediately rejected it. So there's an energetic sensitivity that I feel like I had when I was a kid that I didn't mm. want anything to do with it. But when I was in high school, because my family was vegetarian, it wasn't a practice that I needed to— Uh, exercise. My my mother would make my lunches. My mom would cook lunch and dinner. So I wasn't... And if I was buying food, then yeah, sure, I would buy stuff that was vegetarian. But for the most part, I wasn't buying food. I was eating at home. So it was a non-issue. And I could debate about the principle of vegetarianism, but it wasn't really a conflict or challenge for me until I hit a point in high school when I had a debate about abortion with somebody. (laughs) And then... They responded and said, Well, what about eggs? Do you eat eggs? And I was like, Yeah, but what is that got kind of to do with? And they go, Well, those are that's a chicken is deliberately not allowed to have that egg fertilized. And I was like, That's what an egg is? And I'm dumb because I'm a city person who doesn't know the most basic things. And I was like, Oh, now I don't feel right about eggs. So I stopped eggs right away.
0: Hey Anand. Yeah. That feeling you described of getting handed the food and getting a vibration off it, have you had any experiences like that lately? Any objects or people or things that gave you a good or bad feeling in that way?
2: I wouldn't say... Yeah, I mean, I, I would say to an extent, yes, I've had that. I mean, I my sense of people very quickly, but not that they're good or bad people, but just that whether we would get along or not. Like, I've gotten very, very... I've gotten better at trusting my gut when I mm-hmm. meet somebody to know pretty quickly, am I going to get along with this person or going to be or am I going to have like issue with them in some way? And I, you know, you can have issue with anybody in any way, but I mean in a way that fundamentally makes it difficult to maintain a relationship with this person.
0: And you can tell that very quickly. It can change, though.
2: Yeah, it can change, but fundamentally, yeah. what doesn't change is I can have a dispute or debate with someone that I get along with well. But I know yeah. that I can have a rational, reasonable, civil debate with them. Someone else, yeah. I'm not sure whether we can argue the same way. I mean, in right. a way, like, we, you know, we work in improv. When you meet people, you must meet people in your day-to-day who are not performers and tell very quickly, does this person have a sense of humor or not? Right? Can I joke with them or not? You're going on a gut impulse. Maybe you do a test joke. And then when they respond a particular way, you go, okay, maybe not. Then they respond another way. You go, oh, this person's like... Oh, I can keep making jokes and they'll love it. Right. We still do it, right?
0: I guess I wondered if they're just, I don't know. So somebody recently where it feels like to me, like, maybe it's just the conversations I've been having, but a lot of people I've spoken to feel more keyed into that kind of feeling right now, or like trusting their guts more or going with their guts more. I don't know.
2: I don't know where I'm going with this. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Are you saying more people feel keyed into the idea that they are or are not going with their gut?
0: I just feel like I've had many conversations recently about people trusting their guts more. Yeah. And I just didn't know if there was anything you'd noticed recently.
2: I think that being in isolation really heightens this feeling because you spend more time either by yourself or with a very, very small group of people. And so you get to know yourself even better and better and better than when you don't have the outside influence of someone you're trying to, you know, impress or hold up a face for. Mm. And that's what happens at social gatherings. I feel like I'm holding up a personality in a vibration that I don't feel like it's it's not on anybody's part. It's it's nobody's fault. It's just it's too much for me to dissipate and also deal with that many energies coming at me and trying to contend with it. It's it's a lot. My brain gets overloaded.
0: Wouldn't it be nice if we could come out of this? I mean, it does feel like we're I, I anyway, I'm like so bedraggled and like hairy and ran out of deodorant and like, can't get a haircut. I feel like a very different person. Yeah. But it also feels like a much truer sense. I honestly, for the first time in my entire life, found out how long my leg hair is. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. But what? that's great, isn't it?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, but can we come out of this maintaining any of that? Because you're right, that like strain and effort of keeping on these masks for like, I don't understand exactly what purpose...
2: Well, I so here's my question, I guess. for you personally, do you feel do you feel happier shaving or happier not shaving your legs?
0: I wax my legs and I liked it, but I also like knowing what they can be. I don't know. I don't know if I've been conditioned to want to wax my legs, but I definitely liked having smooth legs again.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you like it, then you should have you should have it. But someone who tells you if you went out and you didn't wax your legs, someone coming in and telling you, you, you should wax your legs is as bad as someone coming saying you should not wax your legs. If you do it because you like it, then that's fine. Why did not you? Yeah.
0: Well, well, and honestly, like, I can't tell anymore. I can't tell nurture and nature about things like that. Like, I've been so conditioned. But um, it was nice to get to do the experiment to see what they were like. And I'm, like, I'm an actor. I can't go to auditions like that.
2: Well, I so mean, you I can. Diff-
0: well, I can. But, you know, like. As a woman, and you have to—if you're doing like commercial auditions, you have to do a lot of work to like put on your makeup, and if you want to get the jobs, I mean, it would be nice if we had a world where that wasn't the case.
2: But well, that's true, but it just means that you then have to put things in a in a stacked order, right? Like, for example, I want to be in this commercial, and I want to make this money. Yeah. uh, But I also want to keep my legs hairy. So which one do I want more?
0: Yeah. Or. Do, or which one do I need more right now
2: <laughs> well need for sure but at the same time there's a lot of different ways to make a living yeah I mean I'll talk for myself that i I struggled like since 90 what year 96 was my first professional acting gig what's my first union uh-huh. professional acting gig so I've been a performer since 96 that's whatever 20 something years right 20. I don't know, whatever, 24, no 26. Anyway. So, so I've been a performer professionally for that long from before that time. And since that time, there's been a lot of things that I've railed against in the industry, which now all of a sudden people are taking seriously, which is great, but it was 20 plus years of complaining about the exact same set of things and being told, don't worry about it. You're being too serious. Never mind." You know, like, you just need to relax you need to get a sense of humor now like structural racism yes exactly exactly i mean like anybody that i know that's been talking about the same issues for so long they haven't said anything different than they said 20 plus years ago or older or 50 years ago or 100 years it's no different the difference is people's willingness willingness to listen so it's worthwhile to keep hammering away at your message if it makes people listen But I also have to come to a point where I have to reconcile what's important to me. And what ultimately happened was I was fighting with my agents. I've been through nine different agencies in my 26 years and Mm -hmm. all of them were really nice people. All of them were good people. There's not a one of them that I'm going to call racist. Not a single race agent that I had was racist and not a single agent that I had didn't care about me and not a single agent that I had didn't want to make money off of me and make a living off of me. However, My income was their income, but my labor was my labor. Mm. My struggles were my struggles. My concerns were my concerns. They didn't share them. If they take 10 or 20% of my income, that's okay. But take at least 10 or 20% of my struggle to change the industry by petitioning Mm -hmm. for me, getting me in rooms that I can't get in, pushing me for parts that you think typically I wouldn't be seen. Like that's your 10 or 20% effort. Make that effort. Let me do the labor of like trying to impress people in the room. But they wouldn't make that 10 or 20%. So it got to the point where I was like, okay, maybe even if they tried to, The industry still has to make the 10 or 20% and maybe they're not willing to. So ultimately, what am I fighting against? I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's impossible to succeed in the way that I want to succeed. So I quit my agent. I know that I could be booking. I know that I could have a really like relatively successful career monetarily based on the fact that I already did. I already did well for a while. You can look at my IMDb. I was working. I'm busy. I was busy. I have selected yeah. to pull myself out of it because it didn't make me happy anymore. I may go back into it if the industry has changed enough. But I also need a reasonable relationship with, with a talent agent who was willing to go that 10 or
0: 20%. It's a really good way of putting it on end. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, we're getting into inside baseball, but also, like, I don't know what to say about the unions either.
2: The unions are the same way. I Every one yeah. of my issues I've brought before the union. Even now, there's issues that I've brought before the unions and they don't listen because they're trying to maintain a number of different voices and they're trying not to rock the status quo. And I understand the political game that they're trying to play and why it's a delicate balance. I totally understand that. So my option is, petition for change and they say, you know what, we're we're dedicated to change. Why don't you join us in the room? We'll see what we can implement. And if we can't implement something, we'll discuss why we can't and see if there's a way that we could implement it in the future. If I was invited into those rooms, I would go, but I'm not. My feeling is I'm not invited into the rooms because the ideas are too drastic. So forget it. And the ideas are not drastic, just no. so it's clear. The ideas that I would have petitioned for are things that are now being implemented already anyway. And there's yeah. more. There's more things that we can do collectively to change things for everybody. But there's, there is an unwillingness to do it. And so I, I, I can scream about it, but it's kind of pointless. So I'm focusing on doing this digital media stuff. And seeing if I can do things on my own, not because I don't want to be part of that bigger field, but because I know the only way that anybody ever listens to you in this industry is if you have some kind of clout, if you've got a lot of likes on Twitter, if you're well followed, if someone big, famous, whatever, likes your work. So let me just keep generating work and see if I can find enough Twitter followers or enough people to follow me. That suddenly I'm a worthwhile commodity for the main players to go. Oh wait, okay, we want to work with you, so you have conditions. I understand. Tell us your conditions. We'll work around them. As opposed to now, where it's you got conditions. No thanks.
0: Yeah. Where can people find you? Where can they follow you and make this dream come true?
2: I'm on all social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm even on TikTok. Not not as much lately, but.
0: Oh, you are. Uh, what's and what's I'm your on Vimeo. handle?
2: I'm on Vimeo. Uh, Everything, the handle, on on Vimeo, I'm Onofono, but you can go by my name, Anand Rajaram. Everything else, you can go by Anand Rajaram as well. I'm particularly under HRH, which is His Royal Highness, uh, because I I, uh, crowned myself. (laughs) Yeah. So one (laughs) thing, you know, there's one other thing, if I can just say this one last platform thing. Please. Um, I'll be quick about it, because I know we're wrapping up. Yeah, Um, you don't have to well it's okay but um the you know i i've said this also to a number of people so there's people who haven't heard it so i'll say it for them um we live in a multicultural country right mm-hmm. and that's like in the law we're in a multicultural country so what does that mean to you to me yeah what does the term multicultural mean
0: I don't know. I've heard a lot of different things about it growing up. I heard it was a bad term, but it means there's people of different cultures living in the same country.
2: Yeah, it totally does. Yeah, there's people of different cultures living in the same country. So what it begs the question is, what does culture mean? So what is culture?
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So can you define culture? In
0: that case, I think we're talking racial background.
2: Well, but what if we aren't? I don't think
0: that's the definition of culture, but...
2: But what if we aren't? then what does it mean? Like, for example, let's say you have identical twins. So they're identical. Socioeconomic status, identical. Upbringing, virtually identical. The way Mm -hmm. they appear to everybody, virtually identical, right? Yeah. So their lived experience should be roughly similar. One of them could get hit by a bus and not the other. That can happen. One of them could get beat up and not the other. That can happen. But in general, if one gets beat up, the other one could get threatened to beat up for the same reason, hmm. potentially because they look like the other one. I don't know because they're moving right. through the world the same way. So, if there's uh, identical twins, identical in every possible way, but one of them likes to uh, one one of them likes to play Monopoly and one of them likes to play Catan, and that's their favorite games, right? Uh-huh. Identical in so many ways, but these two differences, Catan and Monopoly, that's a cultural difference between them, isn't it? It's, mm. not, it's not racial, yeah. it's cultural. So yeah. multicultural actually means the pluralistic, multifaceted human being feeling comfortable representing themselves in every facet of their existence equally to everybody else, as long as they don't harm or infringe the rights of others. Mm. So we live in a multicultural society has zero to do with the food you eat, the language you speak, or the way you, the place you came from. Or I shouldn't say zero. I should say one fraction of. Right. So, if you really believe in a multicultural country, every time one person in a group of 100 says, I don't like this, you should say, I live in a multicultural country. I believe in a multicultural country. You're one in 100 that doesn't like this. I'm going to address you. Why don't you like it? Let's talk about it. How can we make Mm -hmm. it work for you? Because you build inclusivity. If you do that, you also do the MAGA people make America great again, and you view that as a diasporic disconnect. And you say they're the same in that one particular sense of time is the enemy. And you partner them with my parents or any, anybody else who feels the same thing. Suddenly you're building this similarity. Then when they go, well, I, look, make America great again doesn't mean I want to enslave somebody else. It means I want a simpler time. My parents would say, yeah, I too, I do, I want that. But mm-hmm. me at my age, I would say I want that. Many people I know would say, I want that. I want a simpler age. I don't want us fighting all the time. I don't like it. Nobody I know likes that we're fighting all the time. Nobody I know wants to fight all the time. But it feels like they do only because every time you say something, somebody goes policing. Hey, don't say that. Don't do that. The reason is because in the past, people said those things and got shut down. Now, it used to be people say my name wrong. I would have to be the one correcting how you say my name every time. Now, enough people know somebody says my name wrong, somebody else is able to say, actually, that's not how you say his name. And I appreciate that advocacy.
0: Hmm. So, is it about having an open heart?
2: I guess, I mean, <laughs> if you were to draw the picture, it would be unicorns and rainbows. Yes. <laughs> no, I mean, there's
0: a generosity. I know that you, you'll have conversations with people who don't agree with you
2: more than most people will. Yeah. Well, I know. I, I would say, I mean, I, I don't mean to mock that. I think it is about having an open heart. The only reason I I kind of joke about it is because I think that comes loaded as a term. Okay. That's why. I, I'm thinking of it in practical, reasonable terms. In very practical, reasonable terms. Like I was debating with somebody, I'm not going to name them. I was debating with somebody on Facebook about what a comedy club safe space means. Right. And And they were saying like, There was a show that was called, like, Not a Safe Space, where was people going to come up, particularly to target everything that was considered politically incorrect. And there's a bunch of people who regularly go to that club who perform there or who are patrons who said, wait a minute, we don't want that in this club. We're not interested in that kind of commentary in this club. If you can come and give us commentary that makes us laugh and makes us feel good and makes us think critically, yeah, come on in. But if you're coming and the likelihood is we're going to be offended, insulted, speak, spoken to, like talked down to, make us angry, don't make us feel included in the jokes that you're saying, if you're going to come and do that, don't do it here. Find another place to do it. Yeah. So then the club is in the perspective of saying, well, wait a minute, there's you people who already come here, you make me this much money, but this person coming is going to make me this much money. Then the club could say... I'm going to switch and go with the people who make me more money. So then those people who were originally there will say, okay, well then we'll find another club and they leave. So there's a battle for the space. But if the club says, no, 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 you're the people who are, who are regularly making content here. I want you to stay and you don't want those people coming. I'll tell them, look, it's a business thing. If you come here, you're going to make me lose business and you're going to make me lose clientele. I can't lose it. So change the thing you're doing or you can't do it here. So then those people go, well, you're criticizing, you're censoring me. But it's not censorship. That's curation. It's just curation. Yeah. We, we curate all the time. I don't come to your house and put on a Netflix show and say, you have to watch this. You go, no, this is my house. It's my TV. I don't want to watch that. Who are you to come into my house and tell me what to watch? You can't do that. Well, a club yeah. is no different. The club is the, tea, is the living room for a bunch of people. If you go yeah. in there and they don't want you there, then you go, okay, well then, look, I've got lots of people who want to hear me, so I will find them somewhere else. And especially in this day and age, when you could do it through Zoom, you could do it through Twitch, you could do it through like Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. There's so many possible ways you can reach an audience. Reach yeah, them. you can
0: just... You can go do your comedy shows on the dark web. Go do your comedy show on 4chan.
2: Do it anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Do it anywhere you want. Make a lucrative. Make a big name for yourself. Do it. If you can find those people to support you.
0: I mean, I don't want to encourage that because there's a lot of awful people who will support a lot of awful things, but...
2: But they're doing it anyway. I, you're right. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to stop them. I'm just saying the argument that people are, are coming to the place where the club is and saying you're doing something wrong. I'm like, it's a business though. It's a, they run yeah, the, a business. The fact
0: that- they feel entitled to somebody's private
2: business. That's right. There's a big entitlement issue. It's you're not entitled to that space. It's a business. That's it. It's a business. Now, yeah. having said that, it's a business was also the bottom line that was used to keep marginalized people off of TV, off of films, and off of like leadership roles, right?
0: And yeah, and off of stages and out of curation and absolutely.
2: And yeah. that was it was wrong. Based on the reason they said it was wrong, however, the reason it's changed is not because, like, let's be honest, businesses haven't shifted suddenly because they've suddenly realized they were doing the wrong thing. They've shifted because it's bad for business. That's it. Yeah. There is absolutely, that's why there's so much performance um, allyship. It's all performative allyship from a lot of these big companies just because they don't want to lose their business. That's it. Yeah. So- Okay. So people get upset about the performative allyship. They should and they should attack them. And they should say, wait a minute, you know, you as a company did this wrong. You can't just suddenly say you're this and not make up for the thing you did wrong.
0: And not acknowledge it. That's, that's right. the most to me, um, enraging is just not acknowledging it. Right. Being like, No, we've changed now, everything's fine.
2: Yeah, exactly. So so that's what people are calling out. And then other people go, Oh, well, there's no pleasing you people. Well, there is. <laughs> there, there, there is. It's, it's just quite easy, in fact. Yeah. It's really easy. It's really, really easy. You say, "Here's the things that I'm sorry that I know that I did." Here's okay. now a forum for you to tell me what else I did so that I can apologize for those things. Then here's steps that I'm going to take to make sure you know that I'm sorry, and to make sure it doesn't happen again. Those the, none of that is complicated. That's all very basic human behavior.
0: Yeah, yeah, and also saying, I think. Like, if I've made all those mistakes and I, did, I caused all that pain and harm, then also maybe I'm not the right person to solve it and need to look elsewhere. I need to acknowledge that.
2: Well, yeah, exactly. Like, fundamentally, the community that's holding you accountable, if they say, we think it's important for the optics that you, as someone who did that past thing, no longer lead this organization – then if you've really understood and really changed, you would say, I fully have changed, but I 100% understand what you're saying. I'm going to step down willingly.
0: Yeah. And if you're good at what you do, it'll be easy for you to find another job.
2: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if you leave that way, all of a sudden you won't have issue finding another job.
0: or Because all the people who were alienated by terrible systemic practices had to go find other jobs. That's right. And they had to figure it
2: out. Yeah.
0: Well, on in... we've run out of time.
2: Yeah, it's been so, I'm sorry I lectured so long, but it was really good talking to you. No, 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 that's the
0: point. Okay. Don't apologize at all. Um, I want to talk to you more and more, but we can't. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: No, thanks for having me. I really, um, I, I could go on, as you could see, talking about this stuff forever.
0: Well, thank you so much, Anand.
2: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Becky. And
0: (laughs) goodbye.
2: Okay, bye. See you soon.
0: The H-Word Podcast is produced by me, Becky Johnson, from Parkdale in Toronto. Artwork this week by Shannon Gerard, and our theme music, as always, by Laura Barrett. For information on all our artists and guests, please follow us everywhere at The H-Word Pod or sign up for our newsletter at thehwordpod.com.